morning, brothers and sisters. Happy Easter to you all. You know, when it comes to uh, Easter and worship and the celebration of the resurrection of our Lord, there is so, so much to say. I could come and, and preach a whole message on first fruits and say happy first fruits for, to you today because today is the, the feast of first fruits for the nation Israel. They, they celebrate Passover uh, and then on you know, Sunday morning after the Passover, it's first fruits. And so a proper way to say uh, happy Easter uh, in a biblical way could be to say happy first fruits. Um, and Jesus is our first fruits of the resurrection from the dead. We read about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So happy first fruits to you all. And then we could also talk about his resurrection and read all the texts that go along with that. Um, and and the, before the resurrection, the, the, Jesus had to suffer and he had to die and there's the crucifixion and there's so much, so, so much to say. And so I think the Lord has laid it on my heart today to, to talk to you about Isaiah chapter 53. So turn with me in your Bibles to the gospel according to Isaiah. The gospel according to Isaiah chapter 53. It's in your Old Testament, nearer to the end of the Old Testament of the Bible. The book of Isaiah and chapter 53 and today we'll see in great detail the humility and the exaltation of our Lord Jesus Christ, foretold by the prophet Isaiah 700 years before the actual events took place. Truly, truly amazing. What we're going to read today was written, remember this, 700 years before Jesus walked the earth. And I think you'll be amazed at how exact this prophecy is. Now, this text in Isaiah chapter 53, this is considered the forbidden text by Jewish rabbis because it so clearly points to Jesus Christ as the suffering servant of the Lord who takes away the sins of all those who will trust in him. As a matter of fact, if you ever have the opportunity to share the gospel with an unbelieving Jewish person, go to this text and simply read it. Read this text to that person, and then don't tell them where it's from. Just read it, and ask them. Ask them to tell you where, do you, where do you think this is from in the Bible, and who do you think this is talking about? And almost every time they will tell you, oh, that's from the New Testament. That's talking about Jesus. And then you can tell them, no, yeah, it's not. It's from the Bible, but it's from Isaiah. It's from the Old Testament of the Bible. Oh, and yes, it is talking about Jesus. And you will see an astonished look on their face like, how have I never seen this before? Shocking, shocking that they've never seen this before because in their tradition, the rabbis gloss over this. They skip over this because they know it points to Jesus. Many of them do. And so in your Bibles, Isaiah chapter 53. Now, we're, we're going to start at chapter 52, verse 13, <coughs> because that's where this really starts. Chapter 52, verse 13. And I want to read the text, and then I want to walk through it line by line, verse by verse. And as I read, I think you'll be astonished to see the Lord Jesus in all of these words. So let's start at Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13. It says this. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance 
was so marred beyond semblance, beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one who, as, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. And so we see here in Isaiah 52 and 53, the humble, exalted, the humble and exalted servant of God. Look back at chapter 52, verse 13. It says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. So, so who is my servant? Who, who is he talking about when, he's, when the author Isaiah says, my servant? Is it the nation Israel? Is it Isaiah? Or is it another prophet? Well, we know from the context that it cannot be Isaiah or Israel. Uh, we can read in Isaiah 42, verse 1, it says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Isaiah 49, verse 6 says, Indeed, God says, is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob? And to restore the pre preserved ones of Israel, I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles, that you may be, or you should be, my salvation to the ends of the earth. 
And we see here in Isaiah 53, 11, that he shall labor, he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. And so from these verses and others in our context, we can, we can discern that my servant is someone other than Isaiah or Israel. And if that's the case, who could it be? Who in history will perform these mighty acts foretold by Isaiah? And the Hebrew verb meanings and constructs, they really convey this idea that he will rise up, he will raise himself up still higher, and he will stand on high. And the verbs in the Hebrew, they denote the commencement, the continuation, and the result or climax of the exaltation. The resurrection, the ascension, and the sitting down at the right hand of God. This is someone more glorious than the prophet Isaiah. And so we see at the outset of our text that the servant of the Lord will deal prudently, wisely, and as a result will be highly exalted. And I believe we'll see clearly today from our text and its fulfillment in the New Testament accounts that this servant is none other than Jesus Christ. And verse 13 says that he will deal prudently. What does it mean that he will deal prudently? What is so great in, about his actions that the Lord would be pleased to highly exalt him? Well, let's continue through the text and find out. Look at verse 14. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which, he, which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. And so just as his degradation was the deepest degradation possible, so his glorification would be of the highest kind. The height of his exaltation is held up as presenting a perfect contrast to the depth of his degradation. In verse 15, the word sprinkle here is also used in referring to the sprinkling of the blood with the finger on the altar of incense on the Day of Atonement, the priests would dip their finger in the blood of the sacrifice and they would sprinkle that blood on the, the altar. And so he's given the image here that the servant will atone for the sins of the nations. And so even from Old Testament prophecy, we can see that God's plan of salvation has always been for Israel and the nations. It always has been. It's not just for Israel. It's for Israel and the nations. You see that in verse 15. So shall he sprinkle many nations. It's always been for everyone. And so the first section of the prophecy closes here. The servant of the Lord, whose inhuman sufferings excite so much astonishment at those who see him. His, his appearance was marred beyond anything you can imagine, it says. He is exalted on high. So that from utter amazement, the nations tremble and their kings are struck dumb. That's what the text says. Look at chapter 53, verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Notice there's a change now. There's a shift to the first person plural. Who has believed what they have heard from us? It's no longer Isaiah talking alone, saying I, or you know, using his own uh, declaration he's saying what they've heard from us Isaiah was speaking before but who is speaking now who's speaking now 
This can't be Isaiah's report, for he would have used the singular. And it cannot be the Gentiles, for we know from 52 verses 14 and 15 that they have not heard, and they'll be astonished when they do. So from the context of the passage, we can deduce that it's the nation Israel now making this confession. He's speaking on behalf of the nation Israel making this confession. This verse is quoted in the New Testament several times. In John chapter 12, verse 36, it says, But although he had done so many signs before him, they did not believe him, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, saying, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That's John chapter 12. Romans chapter 10, verse 16 says, But they have not all obeyed the gospel, that is, the Jews. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So in Isaiah 53, Israel the nation acknowledges with repentance how shamefully it has mistaken its own Savior. It laments that it has put no faith in the news of the high and glorious calling of the servant of God. Now, what is the, the report or the message that Israel is referring to here? What's this report that they have not believed? None other than the humility and exaltation of Messiah, the servant. And all that follows through the rest of this chapter is the confession of, of Israel of the last times, to which this question is the introduction. This text is one of the greatest prophecies of the future conversion of the nation Israel, which has rejected the servant of God and allowed the Gentiles to be first to recognize him. A remnant in Israel will repent and trust in Messiah Jesus. Then this chapter will receive its complete historical fulfillment. Look at verse 2, chapter, three, uh, chapter 53, verse 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. So notice the words young plant here, and, and dry ground, this imagery here. Both of these figures depict the lowly and unattractive character of, of his humble beginning. The expression out of the dry ground brings out the miserable character of the external circumstances in which the birth and growth of the servant had taken place. The dry ground is the state of the enslaved and degraded nation Israel. The dry ground is the corrupt character of the age and a nation into which he was born. Here we see the humility of our Lord in his coming. He did not come in majesty and glory, but in humility as a baby, born in a barn and laid in a feeding trough. Amazing. His appearance was also humble. The rest of verse 2 could be said this way. We saw him, there was nothing in his appearance to make us desire him. Nothing that we should be attracted to him. He wasn't some gloriously handsome figure that, and with a winsome charm that you know, everyone would be you know, attracted to, like some modern-day TV evangel evangelist. You know, he wasn't like that. Didn't have the great hair and all this stuff going on, and the lights and the bling and all this. No. He was humble in his coming. There was nothing about his, his physical appearance that would make you desire him or want to follow after him. Nothing. Nothing at all. And he lived in Israel. They had him right there before their eyes. 
But in his outward appearance, there was nothing attractive about him at all. Look at verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. So following from verse 2, the impression produced by his appearance was rather repulsive and contemptible to a lot of people. The chief men of Israel and the great men of this world, they all drew back from him. They didn't want to have anything to do with him. They hated him. And he was a man of sorrow of heart, a man of sorrows, the word says, in all of its forms. His life was one of constant, painful endurance. <clears throat> Even from the beginning of his ministry, remember, he was driven out to the wilderness for 40 days fasting. That would be pretty tough. <laughs> that would be pretty tough. He was a man of sorrows. Constant, painful endurance. The wrath instigated by sin and the zeal of self-sacrifice burnt like the fire of a fever in his soul and in his body. Those who saw him hid their faces from him, considered him worthless, especially the religious leaders. They claimed he has a demon, remember? Oh, he does all these works by Satan. He's, he's Satan. He's Beelzebub. Why do you listen to him, they asked. He was despised and rejected by those in power and leadership and was a man of no reputation or no esteem. And the second section closes here. The preaching concerning his calling and his future was not believed. The man of sorrows was greatly despised and rejected. Look at verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. This verse is also quoted in the New Testament in the book of Matthew, chapter 8, verse 16. It says this, When evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed. He cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, He himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. This, the meaning here is not merely that the servant of God entered into the fellowship of our sufferings, but that he took upon himself the sufferings which we had to bear and deserved to bear, and therefore not only took them away, as Matthew 8, 17 might make it appear, but he bore them in himself that he might deliver us from them. Here we have the image of Jesus as our substitute, bearing our griefs and sorrows upon himself. Here, Israel confesses its own blindness. Christ carried their sorrows and griefs, but they considered him to be his own sins rather than theirs. They saw this punishment from God as a result of his own sins. How blind have they been? How blind has Israel been? You see that in the second part of verse 4, yet we esteemed, esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Jesus didn't deserve any of those sufferings. He had committed no sin ever, but he bore them on himself for our sake. Look at verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. He was pierced and crushed because of our sins and our iniquities. It was not his own sins and iniquities. They were ours. He took them upon himself. 
And in this way, he made atonement for them in our place. This was the cause of his suffering, so cruel and so painful of a death. The Apostle Peter, when describing how we will suffer as Christians, said this of our Lord Jesus' sufferings in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 19 through 25. It says, for to, you, for to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You see the point being made here? We were sick to the point of death because of our sins. We deserve death for our sins, but he, the sinless one, took upon himself a suffering to death, which was the essence of the suffering we deserve. And in doing this, and through suffering to the point of death on the cross, he, he's our substitute. And he's the source of our living and healing. Don't miss that today. That's, that's the core message of Easter. We deserve that wrath. We deserve that death. And he said, no, I will take it for them. I will go to that cross. I will take it for them. And so it's not like God just said, oh, forget it. No, their sins don't matter. I'll just kind of wink at that and they'll go away. No, that's not how it happened at all. All of God's wrath, the full cup of it, was poured out on the Lord Jesus Christ on that cross. He took what we deserved on himself so that through his death and through faith in him, we can live. That's the essence of it. And why, you say, you might say, well, why? Why did he have to die? I'm a pretty good person. I don't deserve death for the things that I've done. I mean, I'm, I'm a pretty nice person. I'm a pretty good person. I've never murdered anybody or anything like that. Why? Why all this talk about death and and, and Death is a result for sin, etc. You know, we're, we're pretty good people. I hear people talk like that a lot. Oh, you know, generally people are pretty good. No, actually they're not. <laughs> the heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it, right? The Bible says that. And look at verse 6. We see the reason why right here in our text. We don't even have to go anywhere looking for it. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so here we see Israel's confession and repentance. Israel in its exile resembled a scattered flock without a shepherd. It had lost the way of the Lord. Everyone had turned to his own way in utter selfishness and estrangement from God. And we're, we're no different than Israel in this confession. We have all gone our own way too. Each one of us is a sinner. And if we look into our own hearts, we know that. We know that. And so Israel here has heaped up guilt upon guilt, and God calls the punishment of their sin to fall on Jesus, the servant of God, that he might make atonement for their sins through his own suffering. That's what he has done for us. And so we also should see the depth of our own sin and depravity 
and the infinite grace and mercy of our Lord. We are great sinners, but he is a great Savior. Psalm 14 says this, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of man to see if there is any who understand who seek God. Is there anyone out there who truly understands and is seeking God? No, they have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is no one who does good. No, not one. Ephesians 2 says this, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. We are all sinners. And the Lord laid our sins on Jesus. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. And so it's only by the grace of God that this world doesn't destroy itself. Left to our own devices, we will go our own way, and there's nothing in our heart but wickedness. But it's by the grace of God that we are saved. All this great multitude of sins, this big mass of guilt, this weight of punishment, all of it came upon the Lord Jesus according to the appointment of the God of salvation who is gracious in his holiness. And so the third section here ends. It was our sins that he bore and for our salvation that God caused him to suffer on our account. Many ask, you know, who killed Jesus? Oh, it was the Jews. Oh, it was the Romans. God killed Jesus. God did it. And he laid down his life willingly, willingly so that we could live. Notice his suffering, death, and burial, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that it before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Boy, we see clear fulfillment of this by Jesus in all the New Testament Gospels. Matthew 26, 63 says, Jesus kept silent. The high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus keeps silent. Matthew 27, verse 12, And while he was being accused by the chief priests and the elders, he answered nothing. Mark 15, 15, Jesus still answered nothing. That Pilate, Pontius Pilate, even marveled. He's like, you're not even going to say anything? You're about to die here, Jesus. <laughs> Said not a word. Luke 23, 9, then he questioned him with many words, but Jesus answered nothing. And you can see this in all of the Gospels. And we know the imagery here of the lamb. He said, like a lamb led to a slaughter, a sheep before its shears, a silent John the Baptist declared Jesus, what did he say? Who did he say Jesus was when he saw him come? He says, behold, what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist declared that. Look at verse 8, Isaiah 53, verse 8. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. 
And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, he was snatched away out of the land of the living for the wickedness of God's people. Punishment fell upon him. Jesus was killed for our transgressions. Look at verse 9. They made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Jesus also clearly fulfilled this prophecy in the New Testament. He was crucified between two thieves. Matthew 27, 32 says, When they had come to the place called Golgotha, that is to say, the place of a skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he had tasted it, he would not drink. Then they crucified him, divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet saying, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there, and they put up over his head the accusation written against him, This is the king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and another on the left. So he fulfilled this perfectly. He died with wickedness all around him right there, two thieves right there. He was also buried in a rich man's tomb. He also fulfilled this prophecy of Isaiah. Matthew 27, 57 says, Now when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself also had become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock, And he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. So in his burial, the exaltation of the Lord Jesus, our Savior, begins because he was sinless until the end. The humiliation is completed, killed between two thieves. The atonement has been made, and he's now buried in the rich man's tomb, just as it was foretold. I mean, you can't make that up. Isaiah wrote this 700 years before it happened, and it plays out exactly according to plan. There's no accidents involved here. No circumstances. You can't plan this out and make this up. This is God working. This is how God works. Now he is exalted. Look at verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And so we see his sacrifice was both of body and soul. Don't miss that. So Jesus' sacrifice redeems both our bodies and our souls. The self-sacrifice of the the servant Jesus is complete, and the end of all sacrifices— We no longer have to sacrifice bulls and goats and rams and doves and all these things. Jesus is the once-for-all sacrifice. The suffering of Jesus was was to be the way to glory. And this way through suffering to glory was led to the establishment of our church, the church of the redeemed. And the reference here is to the new seed of Israel, the people redeemed by him, the church of the redeemed out of Israel and all the nations of which he would lay the foundation and be the chief cornerstone. He should live long days, as Jesus says in Revelation 1.18. He says, I am the first and the last, 
Jesus says this, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death, Jesus says. Verse 10 looks forward to Jesus as the mediator of a new covenant and the restorer of Israel, the light of the Gentiles and salvation of the Lord, even to the ends of the earth. We also see that the Father takes much pleasure, pleasure in the Son. Isaiah 42.1 says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. God delights in the servant Jesus. At Jesus' baptism, Matthew chapter 3.17 says, Suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. At Jesus' transfiguration with Moses and Elijah, Matthew 17, verse 5, while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to Jesus. Obey him. Isaiah 53, 11, we see this. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. And so we see the dead yet living one because of his one self-sacrifice as an eternal priest who now lives to distribute the blessings that he has acquired to all those who would love him and follow him. And therefore, verse 12, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the, transgression, the transgressors. And I, was just, I was thinking about that and how, <clears throat> you know, what could sum all of this up for us? And I thought of Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. I think it sums it up perfectly. The Apostle Paul instructs us, to, he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. He humbled himself, taking the form of a bondservant, a slave, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him, and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, of those on the earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The humble, suffering, man of sorrows, servant of God, is highly exalted. Christ is the exalted King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the Savior of Israel and the nations. And as I was preparing this message, I, I was kind of troubling in my heart. I'm like, I've spent so much time talking about his suffering and his death and his crucifixion and verse by verse by verse. And it, it struck me like, this is Easter. This is, this is when we talk about the resurrection. <laughs> and I haven't included any verses about the resurrection. And so I'd have you look at Luke 24. And just turn to Luke 24 and we'll see that. He is a risen Savior. I just want to look at Luke 24. Yes, Jesus died on the cross. He took the wrath of God we deserve, 
on himself. Yes, he was buried in the ground, he was dead. And yes, on the third day, he rose from the dead. And we read about that in the account of Luke 24. All the Gospels have an account of his resurrection. I would just point you to Luke 24 today. You can see the evidence of this on the first day of the week. At early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? Wow. He's not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee? If you go back and read the Gospels, you remember, he tells them over and over again, this is what's going to happen. And they just don't get it. They don't get it. And it and sometimes I point fingers like, what's wrong with those knucklehead disciples? You know, why don't they just get it? And then I point the finger back at myself. You know, how many times have I have to be, do I have to be told? I mean, I'm worse than them. They just didn't get it. And they're like, remember how he told you while he was in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day rise? He told them so plainly over and over again, and they still didn't get it. And they remembered his words, verse 8, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the rest. And now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. And they rejoiced greatly, right? No, look at verse 11. These things seemed to them to be an idle tale. They didn't believe them. Didn't believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. And you can read the rest of the chapter, you can see all the different appearances of Jesus to his disciples. At one point, you know, they still didn't believe, and he's like, touch my hands, you'll put your finger in my nail-scarred hand, put your hand into my side where the soldier pierced his side, put your hand into my side, feel that I have a body. I'm not just a spirit. He ate with them. He drank with them. He was risen in bodily form from the dead. And there's so much evidence of it. And so we rejoice in his resurrection from the dead. It is his resurrection from the dead that gives us a living hope in our souls. And so, brothers and sisters, when you have the bad day and you feel like, oh, life is just so hard, you look to Jesus. And you think of his resurrection from the dead, and you just remember, this is not our permanent home. We're just pilgrims passing through here. He suffered on our behalf that we can, by faith in him, live and have a living hope in our souls through his resurrection from the dead. One day he will come back and take us home to be with him. And so let us go from here today, knowing that he is risen and living today. This is why we celebrate Easter. And for any of you in this room, if you haven't trusted in Jesus as your Savior, if you haven't put your faith in him, do it today. Don't waste another minute of your life without him. You know, some of you may be in here, and you're just here because mom and dad drug you here. (laughs) I I know how that is. You're here just because mom and dad go to church. And that's mom and dad's Jesus. And that's mom and dad's Bible, perhaps. I pray that it will be your Jesus, that you will trust him fully as your own Savior, that your faith will be your own, and you're not riding on the coattails of someone else. Trust in Jesus yourself today, 
and have the living hope in your souls that we're talking about here and that we read about in his word. Believe in him today and have the abundant and eternal life that you can have through Jesus Christ. Amen.